You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 21st day of January, 2012. I would like to welcome everyone to the podcast and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, videos, and articles that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to some of my other websites like FukushimaUpdate.com and ClimateGate.tv. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank all of those listeners who emailed me in the past week to offer the missing interview that I mentioned at the beginning of last week's podcast episode. Once again, I have no idea how that went missing from my own personal records or how it went missing from the website, but luckily there was uh, two listeners who contacted me within the first 12 hours of the release of last week's podcast episode and five uh, listeners total over the course of the week that had that interview in their archives and offered it to me. So once again, that interview with Bob Chapman has now been posted to the website. And as far as I know, that was the only missing file on the website. But if you do find any missing interviews or podcast episodes, please let me know right away so that we can correct it in the future. And uh, hopefully there will be no more strange missing files. But, uh, But it is good to know that there are listeners out there who are archiving this material, because as I've always said, The uh, internet is only here in its free and open form as we've known it so far for a limited time if the people in the positions of power get their way with all of their repressive legislation coming down the line to try to take away our free and open internet. So it is absolutely vital that we archive all the information that we can while we can. So on that note, A plus to every single one of you out there who is archiving, uh, not only, of course, my material, but any material that you find that is important on the web, whether that be articles or videos or MP3s or whatever form this information comes in, please start archiving it and making hard copies so that you can go offline when and if the time comes. But on that note, we have a lot of information to go through in today's very important episode, so let's get straight to it. Can you tell me, Venado, what what this book is? why, Why you've kept it? This is my life. This is my past, this is my present, this is my future. And I keep it to remind me but it's always it's always there don't you know I just this is it this is my life this is everything this is the way I am this is what made me this way welcome my friends to episode 215 of the Corbett Report the cycle of history Milai Abu Ghraib Afghanistan It was earlier this month that video emerged of U.S. Marines urinating on three dead Afghanis. And all too predictably, it only took one news cycle for the outrage machine to kick into full gear. Um, We've had this incident where there has been video that appears to show uh, American forces in Afghanistan uh, urinating on dead Taliban fighters. Uh, What's been the reaction? 
Well, obviously we are aware of a video that was posted on a public website showing obviously uh, US personnel in a, in a situation where they are disrespecting uh, dead bodies uh, that we are seeing on this video. This is a despicable uh, picture and therefore uh, the immediate reaction is obviously uh, that we are looking into it for whoever is responsible. The United States has started an investigation. ISAF, of course, uh, will do anything to support this. There will be an ISAF statement on this shortly. How high could this go? Could laughing at this, seeing this, knowing about this go? It doesn't go beyond this team, I need to tell you. You're this, sure, you're, you're absolutely. Shocked. Everybody in this, in this team's chain of command, they're no longer elite. These guys are outside the norm. This really makes you upset. And everybody in, the, in this team's chain of command right now are trying to figure out why these guys, guys that we trusted, Marines that we put in incredible positions, trained them immensely, that we injected them with our military ethos, and they do this. Everybody in that chain of command right now is trying to figure out what broke down. How does this happen? I mean, as someone who's a general, I mean, this happened in Abu Ghraib. And it was shocking, and, and, and it was known to be totally uh, inappropriate then to, to treat people, to torture, to, to do something as awful and horrendous as uh, defecating on a dead body. And yet it happens? Up until the point that we saw that video, we have no clue. I'm not justifying the action. Right. We have no clue what these young men had gone through up until that very moment. Mm -hmm. But they are trained that once their job is done, they get very agnostic, they get very focused, and they do what they have to do to respect and honor those that they just killed. They might have slaughtered those guys, and that's fine. You then move off to your next mission. You don't do what we just saw. Uh, it is absolutely inconsistent with American values, with the standards of behavior uh, that we expect from our military personnel, and that you know the vast, vast majority of our military personnel, particularly our Marines, hold themselves to. Uh, anyone, anyone, found to have participated or known about it, uh, having engaged in such conduct, uh, <coughs> must be held fully accountable. Oh yes, mark it well. Hillary Clinton and the corporate prostitutes and the ISAF spokesman for NATO in, in Afghanistan want you to know that they are shocked, shocked to find gambling going on in this establishment. Well, yes, the outrage machine, as I call it, is the all-too-predictable result of events like these which inevitably happen in wars and inevitably so because that is the very function of the war machine itself the war machine teaches and trains and hones soldiers to dehumanize the enemy in order to make killing and ultimately atrocities like this possible one of the sickening things about making this into a outrage machine media spectacle is that then it inevitably politicizes it and turns it into a debate with two sides, as if there could be possibly any other side than the condemnation of the Marines in this video. But that's exactly, of course, what happened with such despicable stories emerging within the past couple of weeks, including this one from USA Today, Michael Savage, don't punish brave Marines. You have this editorial from SFGate, the San Francisco Chronicle. Barack Obama should pardon Marines in core case. Or you have this ridiculous story from EndTheLie.com. Rick Perry jumps to defense of Marines accused of urinating on Afghan corpses. 
And of course, the idea that uh, this could possibly be justified in any way, shape or form is on its face patently, not just ludicrous, but absolutely sickening, but of course is feasible when we turn it into some sort of left-right political debate instead of what it is, a question of the fundamental value of human life. But once we have thrown young men, basically boys, into a war theater, put guns in their hand, and trained them to kill people, well, how much further a step is it for them to go and commit atrocities of this kind? I would venture to say not that far indeed. And that is why this will ultimately be swept under the rug as a question about, oh, what will this mean for our troops in Afghanistan? Will this mean that they will be subject to more uh, more vile treatment themselves if they get captured because of what they've done? Or is this a, is this a strategy? What does this mean in talks with the Taliban and other such uh, questions of strategy, which is what it will all boil down to, because the fundamental question of what happens in war and how we deal with that dehumanization and who is responsible for it has to be avoided. Because if we look squarely at that, then the responsibility, the ultimate responsibility for these atrocities fall not just with the people who are directly taking place in them, although they have to take responsibility for their actions, but also this goes to the very heart of who is throwing our troops into war in the first place and what they are doing there at all. And this is a point that comes up time and time again in war after war after war, but it seems that exactly as the old maxim holds, we are doomed to repeat this history because no one ever dares to bring it up, at least not in mainstream discourse. Of course, that's exactly why we are here, taking a look at the suppressed history and the history that they don't want you to think deeply about, the history that they'll occasionally trot out to do some hand-wringing about, but which will never be solved because they continue to throw all of our our boys, our troops into the meat grinder, and then they make the, the, uh, the other side, the dehumanized enemy, the f- fodder for that meat grinder. And it's a cycle that will continue to repeat until we understand what is happening. So in order to start understanding what is happening, we're going to turn to a very, very important documentary that I wholeheartedly recommend for you. I really hope that you will go and follow the links from the documentation from today's episode to go watch this documentary in its entirety. It's called Four Hours in My Lai, and it was a television documentary that was produced for Yorkshire Television back in 1989, and it includes uh, first-person interviews with some of the people involved in the My Lai Massacre, which took place in South Vietnam in 1968, where members of Charlie Company in the U.S. Army were involved in the slaughter of up to 550 unarmed civilians. The men of Charlie Company arrived in Vietnam from Hawaii in December 1967. They'd had no combat experience, but had performed well in training and were considered the best company in their battalion. Their average age was 20. They'd been drawn together from all over America. An army report would later describe them as a typical cross-section of American youth assigned to most combat units. majority of uh, the men in C Company were just your average normal Americans. Uh, most of us were all middle income, 
middle-class families. Uh, they were from all across the United States, Indiana. I was from Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'd say you had a good cross-section of, of the total population of the United States at that point in time. A lot of times when we were first in country, we would go to the villages up and down the highway, Highway 1. You'd play with the kids in between pulling guard duty. And uh, one bridge in particular, there was a boy that always hung around up there with the GIs. Uh, we nicknamed him Six Fingers because he had an extra thumb. He had six fingers. But you'd always take him stuff, candy, pop, take pictures with them, you know, GIs with the, with the kids. It, you got to meet a lot, a lot of people. There was no one else but us. We were in this company, in this place, uh, all alone. We had a company of men that, that all came from one country, all came from the same culture, and we would drop 10,000 miles away, and we, and we felt close that way because there was nobody else to feel close to. American soldiers on patrol in Vietnam in 1968. This was the job of the infantry, the common grunts. And barely a month after their arrival in Vietnam, Charlie Company were deployed on operations like these in Quang Nai province, around the area they called Pinkville, which was known to be sympathetic to the enemy. When we first started losing members of the company, it was mostly through booby traps and snipers. We never really got into a main conflict per se where you could see who was shooting at you and you could actually shoot back at them one on one. Uh, booby traps was the main, the main problem. Newsreel pictures show clearly enough the effect of booby traps. In the weeks leading up to My Lai, Charlie Company experienced many scenes like these. In a unit of little over 120 men, they lost four killed and 38 wounded, almost all by mines, booby traps and snipers. They could seldom find an enemy to shoot back at, and as their frustration grew, the distinction between combatants and civilians rapidly eroded. I've seen the enemy, yes. But who is the enemy? You know, we had little kids over there that would shoot you or stab you in the back when you walk away. You know, who, who is the enemy? How can you distinguish between the enemy, the good or the bad? All of them look the same. That's, that's the reason the war was so different. You know, you, you, it wasn't like Germans over here or Japanese over there. They, was, they all look like North and the South. You know, so how can you tell? Within a few weeks of arriving in the country, men from Charlie Company had already begun systematically mistreating their prisoners. There were reports of random killings and rapes. One GI took this snapshot of an interrogation involving torture. In mid-February, Lieutenant Kelly, leader of the 1st Platoon, threw an old man down a well and shot him. No disciplinary action was taken. When I saw American soldiers uh, uh, committing acts that would be called atrocities if somebody else had done them, uh, I, I began to think that maybe I was wrong, 
maybe I had been just, just too naive all my life that, that this was the way things really were. I, I tried not to think like that. I tried to keep my own, my own values together, but uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, little by little, I began to see that, that, uh, that this group of men was, uh, was getting out of control. On the 15th of March, plans were drawn up for an attack on My Lai, believed by intelligence to be the HQ of a Viet Cong battalion. Charlie Company was to mount the main attack, and fierce battle was anticipated. Colonel Aran Henderson, brigade commander, expressed irritation at past failures to close with the enemy and demanded more aggression. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker drew up detailed plans, and his orders were passed on to Charlie Company by their CO, Captain Ernest Medina. No one in the chain of command has ever accepted responsibility for what happened, but Charlie Company had little doubt about what they had to do. The under understanding or the order that was given was to kill everybody in the village. Someone asked if that meant the women and children, and the order was everyone in the village, because those people that were in the village, the women, the kids, the old men, were VC, and they were Viet Cong themselves, or they were sympathetic to the Viet Cong. They were not sympathetic to the South Vietnamese Army, and they weren't sympathetic to the Americans. They weren't giving us any assistance. They weren't uh, helping us in the war effort whatsoever. So it was quite clear that no one was to be spared? It was quite clear that no one was to be spared in that village. My understanding was we were going in, we were going to get into one hell of a fight, and we were going to kick some ass when we got done. There wasn't going to be anybody left. didn't turn out that way. News film of a helicopter assault, one of thousands conducted by the Americans during the Vietnam War. The attack on My Lai started in the same way, just after seven o'clock in the morning. It was a Saturday. According to intelligence, all civilians would have gone to market. Anyone still in the village would be Viet Cong but intelligence was wrong. As the troops embarked, 12 minutes flying time away, many villagers were still finishing breakfast. At 7.22, the first helicopters left for My Lai. helicopters appeared over My Lai at 7.35 a.m. There was no hostile fire. Within 20 minutes, all 120 men and five officers of Charlie Company were landed. There was no opposition. I was 19 when I went to Vietnam. I was a rifleman specialist, fourth class. I was trained to kill, but the reality of killing someone is different from training and pulling the trigger. You know. So you knew when you went into the village that if you found women, old men, children, anything that was living, you knew that you were going to have to kill them? 
that day? From women and children to dogs and cats, yes. Yes. So, but I didn't know it, that I was going to do that. I knew the women and children was there. But for me to say that I was going to kill them, I didn't know I was going to do that until it happened. I didn't know I was going to kill anyone. I didn't want to kill anyone. I wasn't raised up to kill. Now, she was running with her back from a tree line, but she was carrying something. I didn't know if it was a weapon or what, but it was a woman. You know, I knew it was a woman. I didn't want to shoot a woman, you know, but I was given an order to shoot. So I'm thinking that she had a weapon running. So when I shot and I turned over, it was a baby, you know, shot about four times, three or four times. And the bullet just went through and shot the baby too, you know. And I turned over and I saw the baby face where we half gone. You know? <clears throat> and I just, just blinked. I just went. You know? The training came to me, the programming to kill. And I just started killing. What do you mean you just started killing? Did you go looking for people to kill or what? You didn't have to look. They was there. They was trying to get away. But they was just there. It wasn't hard to kill. It wasn't hard to find anyone to kill. That day in my life, I was personally responsible for killing between 20 and 25 people. About 25 people, personally. Men From women. shooting them, to cutting their throats, to scalping them, to cutting off their hands, and cutting out their tongue. I did that. Why did you do all that? You didn't tell me. Why did you why did you kill the man and do that? I just went. My mind just went. I didn't wasn't the only one that did it. A lot of other people did it. I just killed once I started the, the training, the whole programming part of killing. It just came out. But your training didn't tell you to scalp people or to cut ears. No. A lot of people were doing. So I just followed suit. I just lost all sense of direction, of purpose. I just started killing any kind of way I could kill. It just came. I didn't know I had it in me. But like I said, after I killed the child, my whole mind just went. It just went. And once you start, it's very easy to keep on. Once you start, the hardest, the hardest part is to kill. But once you kill, that's become easier to kill the next person and the next one and the next one. Because I had no feelings or no emotions or no nothing, no direction. I just killed. most disturbing thing I saw was one boy and this was something that you know this, this is what haunts me from the whole whole ordeal down there you know, it was a boy with his arm shot off shot up half, half hanging on and he just had this bewildered look in his face and I'm like
what did I do? What's wrong? He was just, you know, it, it's hard to describe. Couldn't comprehend. I, sh I shot the boy, killed him. as a mercy killing because somebody else would have killed him in the end. But it wasn't right. An almost unthinkable, almost inhuman slaughter. But that's exactly the point, isn't it? The dehumanization of war is what makes this type of slaughter actually possible. And of course, this is not something that happened in isolation or only ever happened once in human history, as I'm sure you are all well aware. But once again, when this history is swept under the rug and is not brought up in the, into place things like the recent video of the Marines urinating on corpses, putting that into its proper historical context, then we lose that thread of history and we lose sight of the fabric that is being woven from that thread. So I will allow you to continue your own investigations into Milai and the horrendous cover-up that took place in the wake of that atrocity. And for those who have not yet done so, I would recommend a recent episode of American Experience, which looks into this, uh, this atrocity and what took place that day in Milai. But let's move on and see how this does tie into the greater thread of history. And in order to do that, we're going to listen to a Mario Savio memorial lecture that was delivered by Seymour Hirsch in 2007. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware that Seymour Hirsch is, of course, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who won the Pulitzer Prize for his breaking of the Milai story in 1969. And certainly he has done some remarkable reporting over the years, including his revelation back in 2008, for example, of the Dick Cheney false flag plan to dress U.S. Marines up as Iranians and dress up their boat as an Iranian PT cruiser and to attack U.S. forces in the, uh, in the Gulf, in, order, in the Persian Gulf, in order to set off a war with Iran. And people who don't know that story, I will put a link to it so that you can, uh, you can hear about that. And some of the other remarkable reporting that Seymour Hirsch has done over the years, but please don't take this as an endorsement of Hirsch overall. Uh, Sibel Edmonds of BoilingFrogsPost.com has had a recent very interesting expose of Hirsch and his remarkable lack of reporting during the Obama administration, proving that unfortunately Hirsch himself is just part of the controlled opposition that is there to, uh, to raise bloody hell in times of Republican administrations and to be utterly, totally silent during the atrocities committed by Democrats. But at any rate, and taking all of this with a pinch of salt, certainly Hirsch was there in the thick of Milai. He was also there in the thick of Abu Ghraib and helping to break that story all those decades later. So he has a very interesting insight to offer on Milai and Abu Ghraib and how all of this ties into the dehumanization of the war machine. So let's take a listen to this excerpt from this Mario Savio Memorial Lecture that once again was delivered in 2007 at Berkeley. We now know that in the prison in Abu Ghraib, that Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, which have been reporting and screaming about these places for a year and a half to nobody paying attention, after all, you know, there's no pictures, um, 
Um, they estimated eventually 90% of the people there had been caught in random roadside checks and, you know, the way it works is if, if an American's attacked, we run in every house around and any mail we, in the buildings around there we grab and, and lock up for interrogation. It's pretty much random. Officers tell me, young kids that serve there tell me the biggest problem they have, of course, is keeping the kids away from the people because when you, when you don't have any contact with them, we're not fighting an army, we're fighting a guerrilla war. There is an analogy with Vietnam, the same issue. They never saw the, you know, the, in Vietnam they used to say the Viet Cong were farmers by day, guerrillas at night, but you never, you, you're riding your trucks along, and you're doing, you're going along driving your trucks and down the same road are your tanks and eventually you get blown up and eventually you think that those kids who waved at you a block before knew what was going to happen, so eventually you want to hurt them. So the young kids who care, and again, you can't say it enough, you know, to talk about the failure of the military leadership, are, are the, the kids who serve, uh, the, the officers are in local parentis. They're the mothers and fathers. They're keeping them not only from bullets and bombs, they're also keeping them from themselves. Nothing as dangerous as an uninformed kid with a weapon in a war zone. And so the failure is so colossal, even though you have to, in all fairness, you have, there's not been a mutiny. You have to admire the tenacity with which they're fighting, our boys. Um, um, I, I don't blame them. This is much higher level. But in any case, so the panic's on. We got to get intelligence. It's September, and so let's start jacking it up. Out of this comes. We all saw Lindy England. You know, I hope you read enough to know that she wasn't. She was basically not not capable of much independent thought. Uh, very tied with this, tied to one of the guys in the unit by, with, by whom she had a baby. Um, not very independent. Um, and um, this is a group from the 372nd Military Police Army Reserve Unit. In, in, located in rural Virginia and West Virginia, they attracted people from. These are the people, the kids there may have had an enormous amount of innate intelligence, I can't say otherwise, but they certainly were not particularly educated. Uh, Army Reserve for them meant uh, a few extra bucks to do maybe some junior school, some beauty school, some just some more bucks to get along. Night pizza managers they were. And they were trained not as military policemen in terms of prison guards, they were trained to be traffic cops. And they were sent to Iraq to do so and uh, got a few weeks training in late summer as being prison guards, sent into the prison. Um, by late September, the games are on, the Abu Ghraib games that you saw, September, October, November, December. This was a very focal point for the American operation. We had to get intelligence. Everybody went through in these three months. General Sanchez, the three-star in charge, all sorts of people. Every senior officer went through and military intelligence were all over the place, CIA were all over the place, American Special Forces, SEAL teams, CIA teams, and Delta Force teams. They bring in certain people, they would snatch and bring them in for interrogation. Um, I, I proffer to you that a bunch of kids from West Virginia, and, and Virginia did not know that, um, uh, that in the Koran, uh, it is totally shameful, it is against the Koran for a, ma a male to be seen nude by another male. In the Koran, it's almost a, a, a taboo, like, uh, like Freud's uh, taboo and totem. It's almost a taboo to, uh, to engage in homosexual practices, uh, although certainly, of course, it happens, but it's a, in the Koran, it is. And, and did these young children know it? I, I don't know. I, there's a lot we, we talked about and answered, but in any case, let's go on with the story because there's something that it's interesting that, that I missed the first time around. In January, Four months after this stuff starts, one of the kids goes in with a CD. They're passing the photographs around. Goes in with a CD and gives it to the cops. The military police take a look at it and they go, oh my God. You know, um, 
Uh, I have a friend, an Israeli friend, who's as tough as they come, Mossad, good German. I have my secret theory about the, the Israelis, which is, yeah, they may have taken Eichmann and put him on trial, but I, I wouldn't have wanted to be a German uh, who was uh, connected to the SS rolling around Europe after, after Israel was established. I think they did a lot of whacking. But we, you know, we'll, maybe Willow won't learn about it, or maybe I'm wrong. But my friend um, saw me six or seven months after I did the stuff on Abu Ghraib in Europe somewhere, and we, we had a sandwich, and he said to me, you know, I hate Arabs, and I hate Palestinians, and I want to kill them, and they want to kill me, and I've done bad things to Palestinians. But let me tell you something, Hirsch, he said. I know that we're going to have to live with these no good people at some point, whether there's a wall or not, we're going to have to share a border with them. And if we had done in our prisons what you had done with this sexual stuff, that wouldn't be possible. Do you know what you did? This is a Middle Easterner. And so in some cases, some of the people, when they saw the art, the photographs and the, and the, the, the discs, understood in January. Rumsfeld testified in one of those pathetic hearings uh, that later that he was told about the, the problem by January 20th, and within two days he told the president. He said then he didn't see the photographs, no reason to doubt him, uh, but he knew it was serious. And so we move on. In late August, late uh, um, April, CBS, I know, has some photographs that are exciting and great, and I also know, I learned from people that held back, the, chair, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs that told them not to publish them. I guess the assumption of the United States is the Iraqi people didn't know what we were doing in, in uh, Abu Ghraib, I assure you they did. <laughs> I had a, uh, in, um, in December of 03, um, I, I spent, one reason I'm so skeptical, I was so skeptical all along about the, the WMD stories, I'd done a lot of work in the UN, um, uh, partly beginning with Scott Ritter and his travails in 1998, but through him I met some of the people in the UN peacekeeping mission and the arms control mission. We're talking about very, there were two kinds of people from from Australia, from um, England, from Germany, from Russia. You had operators, the most skilled operators. You had great intelligence analysts. They were really competent people, very bright. Some of the MI6 people that worked there. And I read their reports. And if you read the UN reports, if you'd read, particularly the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Jacques Bout, ran a, a Frenchman, ran a team called the Action Team. If you read their stuff, there was no way there was anything there. So anyway, so I had, I, I, through those guys, I, I got to know a lot of Sunni generals who were in the army at high level with Saddam, who didn't like Saddam, didn't like the insurgency, but didn't like us. And there they were, trying to, most of them have gotten out. Half a million people alone are in Syria right now. Half of them are Christians. The other half are total supporters of the regime, of the insurgency, anyway. And so this guy, over Christmas of 03, at the same time the games are going on, right before they were, somebody uh, turned the photographs in, he's telling me about Abu Ghraib one afternoon. I spent three or four days just taking notes. And he said it was so bad there, he said, that the woman in the prison, there were a wing for the women, were sending messages home to their, uh, to their fathers and brothers and say, please come kill me, I've been defiled. And it, we're not talking about rape by the Americans, but American GIs will play grab ass and mess around and take photographs of the, of the woman in showers and stuff like that was enough. It's a society based on shame. We operate out of guilt here. Um, you know, you, you know um, go into a locker room in a men's club in Egypt and every man showers separately. You know, not like you know, the stuff in our, in our locker rooms. You know, everybody's slapping around with towels, whatever the cliche is. Um, so um, somebody in the Joint Chiefs that tells, we're back now in April, late April of, of 04, tells CBS, 
60 minutes to, I guess it was, that you can't do it, they don't do it. And so at that point, I, I'm a nice guy, I've been helping him, I say to hell with it. I, I knew where this report was uh, by this general, Antonio Taguba, this born in the Philippines, uh, two-star general who wrote the only report of Abu Ghraib that was never meant to be published and that was devastating. It was the first report just eviscerated. Obviously, he felt something, and I guess being born in the Philippines, I think, helped him feel a sense of outrage at the treatment. So I write the stuff, go along, the president announces, and it's a big flap, the president announced in May that, my God, I'm against terrorism. Condoleezza Rice tells the press at a briefing, the president, she literally says, I, the, trans, the transcript is, was made available later. At, at the time, I think she was just called a senior official, but the transcript was made, she was given the briefing. She was the national security advisor. She said, look, she said to the press corps, the president made it clear he's against torture. I guess the army didn't get the message, right? So we go along, by late summer, all of a sudden, that dawns on me how screwed up I was in what I was thinking. And we all were, because in my business, what you can't see, what doesn't happen, doesn't exist. You know, it's, 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 and so here's what I didn't realize. What did President Bush do between January 20th or 25th, let's say, when he learned about Abu Ghraib and the first public report? The answer is nada, nothing. Did he call in Rumsfeld and said, I demand an investigation. This is unbelievable, unacceptable. We're fighting a war. Did he call in? Did he demand that they replace all the people? Did he demand a full-scale investigation? Nothing. You want to know the chain of command? You got it right there. I mean, this is what, this is the great failing. It's hard to see something that doesn't happen. Um, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a couple. Uh, this is going on forever, and I want to do some questions. But I'll tell you, um, um, You know, when I did the My Lai stuff, the kids in, in My Lai, for those of you who don't know, it was one day and the, there was a company named Charlie Company. And what I'm telling you it sounds fanciful, but it was totally real. They went to Vietnam in late 1967, and in the next three months, they, watched, they marched around in, in, in one of the combat areas in the north, northern part of Vietnam, close to I Corps. They marched around, and they never saw the enemy, but they lost maybe 20 guys out of 100 through snipers, um, through booby traps, and they were more and more angry, and they would begin to act out a little more with locals, and their officers weren't stopping them. And finally, one day in March of 1968, at the height of the war, uh, 500,000 Americans then, they were told, tomorrow you're going to fight, you're going to meet the, uh, the North Vietnamese battalion. We have intelligence that there's going to be 500 North Vietnamese soldiers there. Get ready. So the kids did what that army did. You know, they toked it up, and the officers and enlisted men drank it up. And 4:30, they jumped on choppers, and they went to die and be kill and be killed. Walked into the village. I don't think it was called Mila. I don't think they called it Mila. They they called it Pinkville because it was pink for communists on the maps. They walked into this village. They flew. They dropped off outside the village, and they stormed in. 550 some odd is the number, best number. Women, men, women, children, old women, old men, making breakfast. And over the next three, four hours. They put him in the three ditches and they shot him, executed him. And one of the kids that did a lot of shooting, at this point McNamara had instituted a program called Project 100,000, which was lowering the standards. Basically, so as a lot of people, um, uh, particularly um, African-American political leaders said then, it was just, he simply wanted to get cannon fodder. He wanted to get more black people into the war. And um, um, whatever. Um, Paul Meadlow was, farm kid, white farm kid from uh, 
a southern um, place called New Goshen, Indiana, which is south of Terre Haute, which is south of Indianapolis, which is south of Chicago. And he's there, and Milo says, shoot him, and he puts clip after clip into his bullet and sprays and sprays one clip after another clip. Some of the African-American and Hispanic kids shot. Nobody would dare not shoot, but shot up. Just shot in the air, but they didn't, they didn't, they just said, hey. But a lot of kids shot, and there was a moment in this when, um, uh, after it was over, uh, some, there was a noise and some mother at the bottom of the pit, one of the pits, and there are photographs of it, Life magazine eventually got some, one of the kids took pictures and they were published, after my stories, they, they made them public. And um, a kid crawled up through the mess, a little boy, about three, full of blood, began screaming, of course hysterical, began running across the field or whatever there is, the open area. And Callie said to Milo, he'd been his most dependable shooter, he said, plug him. And Milo couldn't do it. So Callie took his carbine. Officers then had smaller rifles, took a carbine and ran up behind the kid. Everybody, I think I talked to 55 of the kids who were there over the next year, shot him in the back of the head. The next morning, Milo early, while well, beginning the day, walking the first patrol, stepped on a mine and blew off his foot right below the knee and began to scream. God has punished me, Callie, and he's going to punish you. God has punished me, and he's going to punish you. The kids couldn't wait, the other kids. It was an oath. The kids couldn't wait for the chopper to come and take him away, and finally it did, and they medevaced him out. And repressed knowledge, I guess. I'd been doing the story for a couple of weeks, talking to kids, going one-to-one -one when I first picked up on it a year and a half later. As a freelance writer working for an anti-war dispatch news service, little anti-war news service, it's to the credit of the press that I could take it into the straight press. And it worked mainstream press, we call it now, and it got out. Um, but one of the kids finally told me about Milo, and I, and I called up and found him in the phone book, and, and I talked to his mother that day. It was an evening. And she said, I don't know, in this twang. She said, I don't know if he'll talk to you. And she said, I don't know. I said, I'm coming. So I went down. I flew down. to Indiana. I drove down. And there was no, uh, what are those computer searches called? You know, what do they call those searches? MapQuest. I mean, believe me, finding this farm. Yeah, it was on a small farm outside this town, and I finally found it, the farm. And this is not, um, I always think of the Norman Rockwell. Remember that guy who used to paint these beautific photographs of paintings of Saturday Evening Post stuff of farm life? This was really down and grungy. This was a chicken farm with um, no care. Even the chickens looked pretty sad. The, the shack was sad. And I pull in, and she comes out. She's 50, maybe. There's no man around. And she's 50, the mother, and, and, and she looks... She looks 70, weathered, and hard scrabble. And I go up and I introduce myself, and I say, I want to talk to him. She says, he's in there, I don't know if I'll talk to you. And I said, well, I'll try. And she said, well, go ahead. And then, you can't invent this. She says, I gave them a good boy, and they sent me back a murderer. Okay, flash forward 35 years. I'm doing up a grade, and I did three stories. It was sort of the same sort of stuff. The press sort of just watched and let me do it. And, you know, fame, fortune, glory, I got no complaints. Um, but, so I'm doing these stories, and one of the things I do with The New Yorker, which I do with Happy because they're, they're, they're fine to me, they let me, you know, they're great, um, is um, when I have stories that are hot and I'm on television, I do it. I go on, talk, to, talk about it, pimp it out, or whatever I call it. And so I'm on some NPR show. Uh, would be the NPR of today, would be the NPR of 20 years ago, but we've got Amy Goodman, so it's okay. Um, no, she's... Let me tell you something. She's a professional and she works it. She works it. I know she works it. She doesn't, it's not by accident. She works. 
She's a, a very hardworking person and uh, doesn't talk to anybody unless she learns as much as she can about them, um, which is something, you know, anyway. Um, so I'm on this talk show and I get this call on some NPR show and some woman says, I've got a child that went there and she's in trouble, what do I do? And so I, 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 I say, on air, I say, get a pencil. I got it? She says, yeah. And I say, 202, I give my number real quick because I don't want anybody else to call me. And they, the station got a lot of calls. People said, what's that number? And two days later, she called. I didn't think she would have when she didn't call the first day. This was back in Washington. The show was in New York. And she calls and, and I go see her. She's a Catholic family from um, lower middle class family north in, in, in that area. The, re, re, you know, the child was in the 372nd unit. And what happened is, as I didn't know, that is, if you remember this, the sequence, war starts in 03, uh, in September there's troubles, they start jacking up the intelligence, they wanted to get more out of the people, that's why they start the funding games, allegedly to get better intelligence. Um, and the, the complaints made in January and May, the story of 04, it's broken. In March of 04, that unit's sent home. Uh, a complete computer, they've, uh, the, the army officials have gone through everybody's computer, pulled out everything, you know there's litigation going on about the photographs. And in any case, this little ACLU wants them, and they've won court decisions, but the Army's fighting bitterly to keep all of the photographs from that, from that prison from being public, and you'll hear why in a minute. And so I go see her, and here's the story. The kid sent back in March, different kid, disconsolable, irritable, uh, absolutely incapable of dealing with anybody in the family, has a marriage she breaks up, has a family she breaks away from, moves to another town, night job, the whole cliche, Nobody can figure out what's going on. The family's half hysterical. Abu Ghraib comes out about 10 weeks later, and the mother knocks on the door one night at the daughter's apartment, or if she is a daughter. I'm fudging a little bit, but that's okay. The, the story's within parameters to the word. And, and um, shows her a newspaper. It's all over the newspaper. She slams the door. And at that point, the mother, as she's telling me this story in this, uh, in, you know, a Hooters or something like that in this town. And, as she's telling me, and so at that point she said, I went and I remembered I had given my daughter a, a, a portable computer to take to the war because it turns out um, a lot of families did it because they had DVD players that they could watch movies, which makes a lot of sense. And we're not talking about somebody who's aware of the unconscious or Freud. Um, she thinks she was absolutely no connection between Abu Ghraib and her concerns and getting that computer, she said. She just wanted to get a second computer and she remembered it. And she started going through it, deleting files, and there's a file called Iraq, and she hit the button. Out came a hundred photographs, digital, of something no mother should ever see. Do you remember the New Yorker picture, the iconic picture of the, uh, the, the prisoner like this, naked, two dogs, one at each side. He's got to keep his hands behind his head. He can't even use his hands to protect the private parts. He's there with two dogs snarling. Well, in the sequence, of course, and by the way, to the ever, everlasting credit of the New Yorker and the sensibilities of the editors there, particularly um, the main editor, Dave Remnick, enough is enough for the Arab world. We're just going to show this one picture. The message is there. It's not about sensationalism or not wanting to do it. It's about how much do you disrespect the Arabs that we're fighting. And it was a real big, tough issue. In the photographs, of course, the dogs attacks the boy, young soldier or the young prisoner. Blood all over. He attacks him in a sensitive spot. Part. And the worst thing is, in the end, you can see a hand in the last picture sewing up a big gash, blood all over the place. I mean, it was it's something no mother should see. So after some back and forth, there's all sorts of all sorts of issues. Obviously, you know, as a journalist, my God, crisis intervention is needed. What do you do as a as a human being? You know, she really needs this daughter's in trouble. 
I'm in serious trouble. There's also, you've got to get an okay to run these pictures, they're hers. So we go through a lot of hurdles. And pictures run, I don't know, and crisis, and there is something, there was some intervention. Um, the, the, the reason somebody like me worries about it is, is just, um, uh, is the obvious reason. I don't want to be in a position of anybody thinking that somehow I induced this. You know what I mean by getting treatment. I, I have a lot of worries that I have to really be very, very careful. Um, um, and yet I, you have to do something. You have to get her to get that child into some care, some immediate crisis care, which I, I don't know that it happened, but I, I, I found ways to get that message to her through other people's in the family, other family. Anyway, so three or four months later, she calls back, and she says, well, there's something I meant to tell you about it, about uh, that I couldn't tell you then. She said, the child was quite beautiful, came back still beautiful, but in those months after she came back, and particularly after Abu Ghraib became known, she would go out every weekend and get large tattoos, most of them very dark black, blue tattoos all over her body. And eventually she filled up all of the space, just about all of the space, I can't, I don't know about the face, all of the space, she said body, with tattoos. And the mother said to me, it's as if she wanted to change her skin. And so we establish the pattern. The war machine trains the soldiers to dehumanize the enemy. And the acts that they then commit on the enemy, because they see them as less than human, dehumanizes the soldiers themselves. Let me be clear. None of this, absolutely none of this, can or should be taken to absolve or exonerate anyone who has taken part in any of these atrocities from the responsibility of their actions. Everyone is responsible for what they do, even if they are getting orders from above, or no matter what the context or circumstances, no one should be absolved or exonerated of the crime of desecrating corpses or of treating human beings as pigs to be slaughtered. There is nothing that absolves or exonerates that. But there is a context in which that becomes far more likely, and the people who create the context and put the guns in the hands of young boys and young girls and sending them out to the, the meat grinder to get taken apart and, and to absolutely be dehumanized, those are the people who are ultimately responsible for creating all of this in the first place, and those are the people with whom the responsibility ultimately lies. And until we realize that and realize that these atrocities take place in an historical context and are perfectly predictable as a result of these wars, we will never be able to bring the true perpetrators to justice. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Have you ever seen any um, photographs of the people you killed? Yes. Have you got those photographs? I have photographs of the people I killed. Which photographs are they? <clears throat> a man, a child, a woman, and a baby. How can you bear to look at those today? This is my life. This is my life.
Even if I don't open a book, I see it. In my nightmares. Anyway, if I never open this book, it's still there.